Michael Smith. And I'm Chuck Osborne. And welcome to the Iron Capital Podcast. Where we break down investment stuff with anecdotes and stories that non-financial geeks can understand. Hey, this is Michael. And this is Chuck. It's Wednesday, January 3rd. Uh, this is the eighth episode of the Iron Capital Podcast. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> so let's get to it. Chuck, what is on your mind? Self-interest, Michael. Oh. Uh, people are self-interested. And uh, sometimes, um, especially in our industry, um, that ends up kind of skewing things in ways that people don't understand. So there's, a, uh, there's an interesting quote I'm going to my glasses so I get it exactly right. From uh, Michael um, F. Price. Uh, of course, you know who Michael Price is. Uh, but for our listeners, uh, Michael Price, uh, he was with um, Mutual Shares, which got bought by um, Franklin Templeton. And he ran Franklin Templeton for years. And then he um, left there and started his own hedge fund uh, organization. But he's a legendary investor, has, has been in the investment business uh, forever or was and he has this quote that uh, is actually on our website it's been on our website since day one uh, Wall Street is in the business of generating fees for Wall Street period it's not in the business of getting good investment results you have to be separate from Wall Street to do that and um, we talk about this a lot we talk mm-hmm. about how um, there's conflicts of interest in, in the industry but I don't ever think we delve into like how do that do they actually manifest themselves um and so so that's really what's on our mind well let's start and i always want to start here really quickly we, well, i think we can be succinct um let's explain like what what is the point of wall street let's start from the beginning sure why is wall street there and what is it supposed to be doing yeah, well, yeah, a lot of people just seem to believe that Wall Street exists and companies go public just so investors can save for their retirement. <laughs> um, that is not, uh, yeah, that's not Wall Street's purpose. Yeah. Uh, Wall Street's purpose is actually to uh, uh, create capital or allocate capital to um, businesses. So, you know, if you have a business. Um, and it's large enough and successful enough and you need to, and you need capital you need money to you know expand and grow uh, you go to a Wall Street bank and they will either issue a bond or uh, or you can sell shares of your firm and stock and um, and then therefore give you capital yeah. and that's that is what Wall Street's purpose um, actually is so it is to uh, you know, to, to actually um, help their clients, which is really corporate America, uh, get capital. Yep, and that still hasn't changed. That's still the point. That is still the point. <laughs> that is still the point. Yeah. Yeah, and when they and when they sell bonds or stocks to uh, investors of any type, right. they make a fee off of that sale. Right. And that's and they generate income from that. Right, and really, and and that is an important thing to to understand because. Um, you know, they're doing their job. This company, uh, whatever it is, uh, needs to raise capital. Let's say in the, in the case of a, of a bond, um, right there. So they're going to raise capital by borrowing money, by issuing a bond. Uh, the Wall Street banker's job is to 
um, get them the best loan that they can get. Yep. Um, and and they really are working uh, for uh, their client. They're not working for the bond investor who ends up actually supplying the money and the capital. Yeah. Um, that is not really their purpose. Yeah. Um, and then once the investment has been purchased, Wall Street's made their fee, their client has their money, that's it. How that investment turns out is really beside the point. Beside the point. <laughs> it's beside the point. It is. And that was a wildly, I mean, it still is very attractive, but it was a wildly um, attractive uh, investment for Wall Street and way to make money for Wall Street, especially prior to 1975 before deregulation occurred. So commissions prior to 1975 were unbelievably high right. and so a stockbroker made huge amounts of money um, yeah. you have deregulation it becomes cheaper and then all of a sudden you have new products <laughs> sure <laughs> that start becoming a bigger part of 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 the ethos there so um, you know one thing yeah. we like to talk about a lot is is mutual funds and yeah. there uh, we use them a lot they're used a lot of retirement plans with we which, which we use and let's talk about First of all, the, the basics of what a mutual fund is, again, we'll be try to be simple and, and quick here about it. Sure. Well, r really, um, the way we uh, like to think about a mutual fund is that it is simply a way for the average investor to hire a professional money manager. Um, and um, what you do is you commingle your money with lots of other average investors, and then you're going to invest in this fund who is run by this professional um, manager and and um, they're going to decide how that money is going to be invested in terms of what stocks or bonds or what have you, um, you know that they invest in. And of course, you you pay a, a fee for that. Um, but um, as we talked, you know, in the past and other podcasts about that, there's a difference between the buy side and the sell side of this business, which isn't talked about as much anymore as it, as I think it should be. Uh, the mutual fund managers are on the buy side, you know, so they're hired by their clients to actually go out and make investment decisions. And uh, they first have fiduciary responsibility to those clients, which doesn't exist on the sell side. And then the other thing that, that um, happens is that, you know, they do care about the results because if they don't get good results, their clients will leave. Yeah. And um, it's not a transaction in the same sense where, well, the transaction is taking place, so what happens afterwards is somewhat beside the point. Um, this is, you know, it's kind of an ongoing relationship and you better deliver results or you're, you're, you're out. Or you're out. Next guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, so they really took off in the 80s and 90s. You know, you've got 401ks and IRAs becoming a much larger, first of all, just being born, really. Right, right. But then also becoming a much larger piece. You've got bull markets happening in the 80s. You've got some star PMs like Peter Lynch. But the, I think the real question here is why were mutual funds, especially as they originally were, so good yeah. for Wall Street? You know, why, why, how did that occur? Why did that occur? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, because really what happened is um, it gets back to your deregulation question. So, and we um, uh, talk about this a lot, but the, um, you know, the reason Wall Street banks had brokers all across the country 
is because, you know, you know, as recently as the 70s and even the 80s to some degree, um, technology required them to have brokers all over the country. Um, if you're trying to uh, sell, um, you know, stock in Coca-Cola, because Coca-Cola just issued a bunch of new shares and, you know, you, 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 they, you know you're a Wall Street bank, you've been hired by them to... Um, to, to go out and, and distribute those shares, then um, you know if you want to do that in uh, Wisconsin, um, then you have to have people in Wisconsin calling investors in Wisconsin, yeah. saying you know would you like to buy shares you know of Coca Cola? Um, the uh, today the, that's. 100% done, you know, electronically. Um, commissions are practically a thing of the past in terms of individual stocks. Um, you know, that and the technology has been around for some time now, where uh, people can just do that online. You don't need to actually have someone in Wisconsin and for someone in Wisconsin to invest in shares of Coca-Cola. And so. Um, you know, in any other industry where you're dealing with a product that's tangible, uh, that individual would have just gone away. That job description would have just gone away. But in our world, what happened is it evolved to the financial advisor. Yep. And so when it became more of an advisory relationship, you started buying, um, they started using funds more than um, you know, just going up and, and kind of saying, you know, here's, I've got this stock, here's stock. that, that yep. I'd like you to buy. And so, um, and so that's where the mutual funds started uh, taking off. Um, uh, but the reality was, it, you know, it wasn't, it, it wasn't great for, uh, for Wall Street because now you've got more and more Clout and more and more power being piled into the kind of the buy side of the business, yeah, the uh, funds, with yeah. the mutual funds, and um, and the mutual fund companies and mutual fund managers are incented because everything's about results, 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 and so they're they're they are actually incented to uh, drive down the cost of trading, you know, to um, you know to do a thing a lot of things that aren't necessarily great uh, for Wall Street. Yeah. And so that kind of led to the next um, evolution of where Wall Street ends up going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and which is. <laughs> yeah. Well, there was multiple steps, but I think what we want to talk about today is probably ETFs. Yes, yes, um, yes, exchange yes. traded funds. Yeah. And so uh, the, um, yeah, the ETF, uh, we'll start with just kind of the history of what it was. Mm-hmm. Um so you know, again, for the lay, for the average investor, um, if you wanted to hire a professional money manager, what you would do is you would use a mutual fund. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, for um, the old institutional investors, the traditional institutional investors, uh, like endowments, um, pension plans, the old-fashioned pension plans, mm-hmm. uh, what they would do is they had um, they would go out to institutional money managers. And they would have them be managing a, a separate account specifically for that pension plan or specifically for that endowment. Um, and that was the business that Invesco was in you know, here in Atlanta that um, where I started, uh, well, where I worked through the 90s. And so that... Um, 
um, that was a totally different world where you, you know, you're unlike a mutual fund um, investor where you own shares of the fund. And if you decide that, well, this manager is not doing well, I'm going to switch and go to this other manager. Um, you simply just trade out of that fund and you trade into another fund the next day. And it's a pretty seamless and easy transition. But when you're a large institution and you have these separate managed accounts, if you want to get, fire a manager because they're not doing well and move the money to a new manager, uh, that's an enormous tra- transition. Yeah, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they, you got, you've got to transition the entire portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, the new manager's probably not going to want a lot of the holdings that yep. were in the old portfolio. I mean, there's a reason you're switching. <laughs> and so... Um, what would often happen is that you have these um, kind of long transitions and, and um, pension plans um, and other institutional investors would actually be out of the market for a prolonged period of time as they transition from one manager to another. And uh, so State Street came up with this solution uh, called an exchange traded fund. And uh, the first one of which, of course, was simply the spider, the attract uh, the S&P 500. Yep. And um, what you could do is that you uh, would, um, as you liquidated your old portfolio from the previous manager, you would put it into the ETF as a temporary um, holding mm-hmm. vehicle. And um, and so you were still invested yep. in the market. You still have market exposure, uh, but you, then you would use that exchange traded fund. And then as it went over, the new manager could could implement their portfolio. Yep. And in stages, small in stages, small pieces at right. a time. They're still invested yeah. the whole time. And at any time during yep. the day, because yep. you know the biggest difference between the mutual fund and the ETF is how they trade. Yep. And so a mutual fund is again, you're you're basically setting up a relationship with a with a money management firm. Um, you can only trade those um, at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, so if you send money, you know, today on Wednesday to you know any mutual fund family, uh, we'll just use T Rowe Price as an example. Sure. You send money to T Rowe Price today. Um, then that's going to have an effective, you know, transaction time of as four o'clock Eastern yep. time to close the market. Close the market today. Today, and then tomorrow you'll be able to see your count. When yep. you, if you sell it, same thing. It's not going to happen till the end of the business that day. Yep. And then, um, and then you know you have the money the next day. So with the ETF. The ETF trades like a sock, so um, it can trade at any time during the day. And so when you're making the transition, it worked as a very good vehicle because the, the, um, um, the new money manager could simply sell shares of the ETF, buy whatever they're buying. And, and now um, you had the advantage of the institutional investors no longer having to have these long, relatively long periods of time where they might be out of the market as they transition from one manager to another. Yep. And so that's what they were. That's yeah, what that's, they were made for. That's how they were created. Yep. And now ETFs have become a, a much larger portion of of the total investable world of how assets are invested. But it probably makes a lot of sense to talk about costs in an ETF versus costs in a mutual fund. 
you know, the explicit versus implicit and sure. how that works. So I think that makes a ton of sense to set up there. Sure. So with with a mutual fund, again, what you're do, you're doing, you're kind of you're um, uh, you're you're hiring uh, an investment management. You know, in, in the case of mutual funds, you're, they're firms, mm-hmm. large firms, um, and. Um, and there's cost to that. So there's um, there's a cost for an account. You have to have an account with them. So they have to set up an account. Um, there's marketing cost. You know, all these mutual fund families have to go out and market themselves. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's um, all kinds of administrative costs. And then ultimately, there's also the, the actual cost of what they charge to manage the money to make the investment decision. So all of that goes into what we refer to as the expense ratio. And um, and then you know historically and, and well I mean really still um, it, today the uh, the mutual fund um, you have the total cost um, some of that goes to the actual mutual fund family in most cases because most people nowadays don't set up accounts directly with mutual funds like they used to mm-hmm. um, I mean they still can but yeah. uh, but most folks either go through their retirement plan yeah, at their work, plan at work. Um, or they're going through a, um, a for a, a broker dealer like a Charles Schwab Fidelity, or Fidelity someone Pershing, who, whatever right, who is who's operating as a broker dealer and so a part of that expense ratio will go to um, that custodian whether it be your retirement plan provider or a broker dealer uh, for setting up an account and so forth and so on and then part of that money goes to uh, the actual mutual fund family to um, manage the money. And so in the case of a mutual fund, um, everything is um, um, disclosed. Um, I hesitate to say transparent because you do oftentimes have to dig into the details. But um, but you you know what the total cost. You know what the expenses are. Right. You may not know where they're going exactly, but you yeah, know but you, what but they you, are. But you know what the total cost is. And all those costs, by the way, are reflected in the returns. And all the, right, all those costs are are net of, yeah. of the returns. Yeah. Um, and so uh, with the ETF, um, again, it just trades like a stock. So there's no account um, with the ETF company that were, or anything like that that mm-hmm. has to be set up. So that so that um, that cost um, is not inside the the product. Um, the you know all so a lot of those administrative costs are not inside the product. So what you really have in, in terms of the disclosed price is just the cost of actually managing the money. And most ETFs, not all nowadays, but most ETFs are. Um, index-based products. Um, again, the original was based on the S&P 500, mm-hmm. still by far the most popular. Um, and um, and that those tend to be very low cost in terms of the cost of managing the money, uh, regardless of w- which vehicle you use. Yep. And so, um, so people will look at ETFs and say, well, that's the total cost, and the cost is much less, but that's not really the total cost. Um, so, you know, again, one of the things we said about ETF is it trades like a stock. And um, we also mentioned that commissions on stock trades have, are somewhat a thing of the past now. Uh, but commissions, you know, 
or just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to cost. Mm -hmm. And so taking the uh, commission away, um, all that means is that you've cut off the top of the iceberg, the part that you can actually see yeah. from the Titanic, yeah. <laughs> and or they should have been able to see. And um, the the big part of the iceberg, the one that the part that actually sunk the boat, is uh, is still there, still there. Yeah. and it's still uh, below the surface. And, and and most of that is made up of what we refer to as the dealer spread. Mm -hmm. Or the bid ask spread. Or the bid ask spread. Yep. Yeah, um, and so um, which is really just, you know, it, it's industry speak for what happens in any, any business any dealing, business dealing you sell in something. the world. Right, right. Yeah. So we, you know, we just got, <coughs> excuse me, we just gotten through the holidays. You know, I'm sure a lot of people have uh, bought a lot of stuff and returned a lot of stuff to a lot of stores, but you know, if you got a, a you know a new shirt from Macy's. Um, then you know the cost, the you know the price that you paid at Macy's is more than what Macy's paid yeah. for the shirt in the first place, and that's how Macy's makes money. Mm -hmm. You know, um, or any you know retailer, you know that that is exactly how they make money, and it's the same thing when you're buying um, um, stocks or bonds or ETFs. Um, the price that the broker dealer will pay for the, the ETF is going to be less than the price that they're going to sell it. For. Yeah, and that's interesting because you don't see this at Macy's or Amazon, but I mean, because you can buy and sell. So if you're buying a stock, you know, you could sell it for a dollar but then you buy it at a dollar oh five, and you can see both of them in the bid ask spread. So you can—that's different than when you're doing another business because you can literally see right now well, what would it, what can I get if I buy it versus what can I get if I sell it. And yeah. that is the—I mean, that's what—that's what that that broker is making on those transactions every time a share, right, sells. <laughs> so um, if you're paying attention, yeah, if you're paying attention, right, and yeah. um, the. Uh, and there are a lot of folks that just aren't. Yeah. Um, they just aren't paying attention. And so, what happens is, you know, when people say, and they'll make this blanket statement that ETFs are cheaper than mutual funds. Um, when you're actually looking at the total cost, it's not nearly that clear. No. And um, as I had an old boss used to um, use this analogy all the time. I always loved it. He was he would use the analogy of a water balloon. And he said, you know, costs are just like a water balloon. If you squeeze one in, you're just making the other end bigger. You know, um, so mutual funds, uh, you know, again, when you are buying a mutual fund, there is no trade per se. There's, yeah. there's no um, bid-ask spread. There's none of that. Um, you simply buy the mutual fund at the close of the business, um, you know, um, and, and that's, you know, uh, is what it is. Uh, with an ETF, you are trading it like a stock, so there is going to be a, a bid-ask spread. And, the, um, and that bid-ask spread can be um, um, quite significant. Yeah. Um, it depends. Now, um, one of the things that drives those spreads down is how popular or the um, the ETF may be and how many people are trading it. So the more trading volume, you will tend to have lower spreads. 
Um, so if you're going just into the standard Spider ETF, which is which again tracks the S&P 500, then the cost is going to be pretty low. And of course, that's the one that everyone always looks at. But if you're just transitioning away from mutual funds and you're just going to say, well, we're going to use ETFs instead of mutual funds, well, now you're not just buying the S&P 500. You're buying emerging markets and you're... <laughs> yeah, if you're going to be a diversified yeah, right. investor, you're yeah. going to be invested. You should be invested in more than just the top 500 largest U.S. Right, stocks. Stocks, yeah. Or bonds, or depending bond. on where yeah, you yeah. are in your investment. You know, I mean, you, you have a much wider... Um, palette of, of investments that you should be invested in, and um, yeah, and they don't right. they don't trade at a tight bid ask spread like the S and P five hundred. Right, and so what ends up happening is that the ETF um, uh, the ETF will uh, the the farther you get away from the S and P five hundred, um, the more esoteric of uh, you know an ETF you're buying, then um, the bigger that spread can be. Yeah. And and that ends up being it can be a substantial cost yeah. uh, to uh, to the investor, um, especially if you are you know kind of the average retail investor who is um, well again the biggest investment for most people um, is the four hundred one k plan and how do four hundred one k plans work? Um, the four hundred one k plan. Um, every time you know you have a paycheck, you're withholding money and putting it into the 401k plan. So for most people, that's somewhere probably you know twice a month or to every two weeks. Um, you're putting money into a 401k plan. Um, so if you're putting constant small amounts of money um, into a, a, a product uh, that actually charges a bid ask spread, you're getting hit by that every, every single time. Yeah. you um, you put money in um, you know away from the 401k plan you know a lot of average investors if they are in this still in this stage where they're accumulating assets they still may be saving on a monthly basis where they're you know they have a set amount of money that they're putting aside monthly uh, for their goals outside of retirement and um, that money would be getting hit um, if you're using ETFs um, just as a re kind of replacement for um, mutual funds. And th th again, and this is where we get back into the self-serving. So now all of a sudden, you know, that charge that we're talking about, that goes to Wall Street. Yep. It doesn't go to the uh, money management firm you know, that actually runs the mutual fund or may run the ETF. And so uh, really to a, to a large degree, what's happened in the ETF world is that we've had a um, kind of an economic shift in the commingled fund universe where the economics used to always go to the fund managers and now more and more it's going to Wall Street and the transaction uh, cost of being put in the ETF, and when, which is why so many times that they're being pushed as um, just blanketly better than, yeah, well, than I, a mutual fund. I like to think of it as when, you, when a broker was selling individual stocks, 
Um, let's go back to the 70s more. You had a very large commission, but a few trades. People would own a stock for years, right? So right. they'd pay a large amount once, but yep. it would be very few transactions. Yep. You move to mutual funds, and those transactions are it's not as good for Wall Street. It's in the mutual fund manager's best interest to trade less, yep. cause have less costs. Sure. Commissions are much well, less. You move to the ETF, and now... If you buy the S&P 500, you, every time you have 500 trading costs smaller, right. plus to buy the ETF is, five, is one, so it's 501. Yep. Yep. So from the beginning, Wall Street received a very few large commissions, and now it gets back to Wall Street getting a lot of smaller commissions. Well, that's right. And, that's, um, and, and this is the thing to remember, that it, they, the business of Wall Street is a transaction business. And the more transactions you do, uh, the better it is for them. And so um, um, so when you, you invest in the ETF, for example, a spider, uh, you, you have that trade of the ETF, but then ultimately the ETF has to actually own the, the underlying stocks. Yeah. And so at some point the ETF has to actually go out and buy the 500 stocks um, that are in the S&P 500. And so, yeah, to your point, it's really 501 transactions. Uh, likewise, if everyone's selling, uh, the same, you know, it's the same thing. At some point, they're going to have to have to sell, and um, and so um, and so, yeah. There's a lot of transactions that are occurring um, because of the move, uh, you know, away from individual stocks. And even to some degree away from um, the move from mutual funds. So to some degree that is also true of a mutual fund. Although with most mutual funds are actually actively managed. There are you obviously you can track the index if you if you want to. There are index mutual funds out there. But if you have an actively managed uh, mutual fund, first of all, cash is a perfectly good ex- investment in a mutual fund. And most mutual fund companies and mutual fund managers will hold levels of cash so that they don't have to necessarily buy and sell stocks just because of daily transactions that would occur with investors selling or other investors buying, yep. um, you know, um, and so forth. The other thing that happens is with a mutual fund is they are traded differently um, in the sense that uh, mutual fund managers can really shop their trades and, um, and trade in a truly institutional manner. Um, and, uh, you know, if they are adding to the portfolio, they're probably only adding to the stocks that they want to add to. Yeah. They're not just blanketly adding to every single stock in the portfolio yeah. if there are some that maybe maybe they're phasing out yeah. um, or, you know, they just don't want to, you know, because of valuation or whatever, they don't want to add to those particular stocks. Yeah. Uh, they're not doing that. But it, when if you're in a passive um, ETF, then... Then yeah, you you're, buy you're you're the buying you're buying the whole thing. Yep. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and also I think this is an important thing. You know, again, Wall Street has 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 really painted alt ETF investing with the S and P spider brush. Right. But you know, really, when you get down from that and you look at and we should talk a little bit more about this when you look at small cap stocks and you look at international stocks and you look at bonds. Yeah. A lot of pieces of that just fall away and don't make sense. I mean, first of all, from not being able to beat the market. Yeah. Much yeah. To um, to costs and all of that, right? So. Um, well, right, and um, you especially have problems in bonds uh, because there's a finite number of bonds, so you can't just um, 
um, you know, you can say that you're going to own all the bonds in the aggregated index, um, or you know, in order to, yeah. to mimic that. But you can't really. You can't. Yeah. I mean, they're not all for sale. You can't find this bond. Uh, right, right. I mean, yeah. um, there's a finite number of bonds, and um, they're not being sold every single day. And so, um, so the, yeah, there's just there, there's all kinds of problems. And we've had and we've seen this. We've seen, you know, one of the things that happens with ETFs um, is that um, you. Um, of course, short-term trading can can cause dislocations between the actual ETF and the underlying uh, portfolio. Uh, but then you also have issues where you know can the manager actually even track what they yeah. what they're supposed to be tracking, um, um, you know, with the ETF. And so you do fall into situations where uh, supposedly you're you're passively investing in. Um, Say the aggregate bond index or some index, and then you know the ETF. When you look at the returns, they they are not tracking. Yeah, they're not actually tracking. Uh, yeah. um, like one would expect if you were in a, few, a mutual fund instead of a, instead of the ETF. Um, and so, um, um, so no, there there are definitely um, problems, and that goes in a both ways. And we can talk about this because it's a totally separate podcast, but. Um, you know, just to passive investing in general, um, the every argument that is ever made about passive investment um, focuses on the S and P five hundred, um, and then they just treat like all, every other asset class as if it's the same as the S and P five hundred, and yep. they are not. No, um, and so. Um, uh, you know, it, it there was uh, this was a few years ago, uh, but I remember you know vividly because we had a client um, ask the question. We um, we did the work on it, where you know we had gone almost a decade where the EFI, which is the big international um, index, um, had basically had a zero, you know almost a zero return, a very little return. Um, the, but the actual mutual fund managers that we were using that was tracking it uh, for that time period over that same decade had had a um, return that was well over twice the, yeah. the, the index um, and was actually a decent, meaningful return. And so, um, um, and we had written about that at the time, yeah. which people could look up on our website. But um, things like that happen away from the S and P five hundred that um, that are is just ignored. I mean, yeah, just, you don't just, talk. just right. They just, um, and of course, this is a symptom of our society today. You know, you, um, you make one uh, point, and then. And then you just that becomes a blanket yeah. thing that we're not supposed to think about any of the other uh, points or details that could that could happen, um, and uh, and and that is a great example of it because people will just they'll look at the S and P five hundred they say active managers who actually benchmark to the S and P five hundred um, have a very difficult time and that's been true beating the S and P five hundred which is absolutely true. Uh, because you're talking about the most efficient part yeah, of the most, the efficient, most market. efficient market yep. anywhere in the world, and then and th therefore 
all active managers yeah. underperform regardless of what they're actually trying to do. And that's just ridiculous. Well, I ran it real quick. We're not going to get too, too into this, but for small cap managers, um, the small cap indices of Russell 2000 are in the 55th and 54th percentile if you're looking at value and growth. Yep. So that means that the-, the Over bit, half. Yeah, yeah, over half beat. And that's bad managers, managers that have too high expense right. ratios, right? If yep. you actually just whittled that down to managers that have decent expense ratios, that gets a lot bigger. Yeah. And, and even in bonds and international, now those are like in the 46th and the 43rd, but still, that's roughly average. Right. And you have very expensive managers and all these other things. So in all those other very large markets, um, the average active manager is um, is either beating or, or very close to the index, and that's not even IDing good ones. So, right, yeah. it, and um, and that's um, <laughs> again, um, people kind of use what's good for them. You yeah. know, it comes back to self-interest and. Uh, Wall Street loves the idea of um, passive investing, um, partly because it's not passive. And there's been articles in the Wall Street Journal about yeah. this, about the, ama- the amazing amount of turnover that's in the S&P 500 um, and that no one ever thinks about. But the, the, the index itself is getting reconstituted, uh, you know, all the time. Every year. And, um, and there, there's um, a great deal of churning that is going on um, inside, of, inside of there. The uh, the other thing, um, again, that happens is that um, you know, it's all about the number of transactions. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> we're talking about the S and P five hundred ETF, but if you can actually sell someone a Russell two thousand ETF, yeah. Well, now you just made two thousand and one. That's two thousand and one <laughs> trades, and the bid ask spread for smaller companies is larger. It is, and yeah, yeah. And, and the bid ask spread for the ETF, for the ETF itself, itself is, is larger. larger. And so, yeah, yeah. and so, yep. um, right, and um, and you you obviously don't do that trying to make like. Does it actually make sense? to do this in this asset class. No, you've got to get people just to kind of have the blanket thought that, well, the, the, the spider works, so therefore every other ETF yeah. must work. Yeah. And um, it's just, yeah, the one does not follow the other. Yeah. Well, and that's the point. The point, and, and to get back to the point is that Wall Street makes products for the benefit of Wall Street. Right. And as consumers, <laughs> you have to keep that in, in mind. Right. Professionals like us, obviously, we have to look at through these things. Individuals do. It's much harder for them. Sure. And none of these things are bad in of themselves. It's just that you have to understand what they're good at and what and when they can be used. ETFs right. have good use choices. Right. We still like to use them as placeholders a so, lot. Right? Yeah. Well, right. And that is really it. And then one of the things that um, we kind of think of as a theme that we talk to our clients about is that you need to use products for what they were actually designed to do. Um, and ETFs are a great example of that. Um, again, you go back to the history. The ETF was designed to be a placeholder. It was designed to be a temporary spot where you still had access to the market. So you, you were still going to get um, you know, exposure to the market while you were waiting to make a more permanent investment. And um, and that's why that's the way we use them. Yep. Um, so when we do use ETFs, um, then um, 
you know, we use them for that purpose because we, you know, we want to have exposure. We're having a hard time finding, you know, specific companies we want to invest in at the moment because of valuation or what have you. So we will buy the ETF as a temporary holding yeah. spot. And, um, and that's a perfectly good way to use it. Um, if, on the other hand, you're building a, a portfolio, a diversified portfolio of uh, funds to invest for the long haul, um, in our opinion, the mutual fund is still... Yeah. If you want access to uh, other, yeah. other quality managers right. that are managing specific parts of the market that they are very good at, a mutual fund tends to still be a really fantastic yeah. way to get access to Because that. that's what they're designed for. That's what they're that's supposed what, to do. So you're using products for what they're actually, what they were actually invented to do, um, as opposed to what Wall Street figured out is, <laughs> is good for them. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. and individual stocks are still the most tax efficient way to, to manage money, and we still use those when appropriate and when we can for, for that, because there's no more efficient way to to deal with taxes than, than that. Well, that, no, that is absolutely right. And there's also, you know, the, one of the biggest reasons why um, you know you don't hear as much about individual stock investing today is again, Wall Street uses what's good for them. Yeah. Um, there is there is not a cheaper way uh, to invest than to buy an individual stock and then actually be a passive investor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which means you're going to hold on to that yeah. company for a long, uh, long, for a long yeah. period of time. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's the best that for a long, long time has been the best way to invest. And in many ways, it's still, the, it, still the, it still is. And the, um, yeah, you, but Wall Street would go out of business if um, if the average investor actually did that. Because, again, instead of 501 transactions, you're just getting one. Instead of the transactions happening, you know, you know, on a very steady basis, yeah. you, you get a transaction once every three years. <laughs> you know, that's uh, that. Um, that's not good for Wall Street. Yeah, and so. Uh, you know, they're not going to push yep. that approach anymore. Yeah. 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 Probably it. What do you think? Probably it. Probably it. One day we'll get into a deeper conversation about Wall Street products that have caused maybe the Great Depression or had a piece of the Great Depression with margin, and and then we could get into you know CDOs and collateralized debt obligations in 08 and 09, but that's maybe a different podcast. <laughs> that, yeah, exactly. All right. We need, yeah, get your caffeine ready. That's for right. That. So uh, like, subscribe, please. And uh, we love when you guys uh, tell us things you'd like to hear more about. So please let us know what we can talk about. All right. Thanks. Thanks. Iron Capital Advisors is an independent registered investment advisory firm headquartered in Atlanta with clients nationwide. Learn more about us at ironcapitaladvisors.com. The Iron Capital Podcast is produced by Iron Capital Advisors. Our awesome original theme music was written and performed by Michael Smith and Leah Calvert. This content is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or advice. 
clients and employees of Iron Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed. Please like and subscribe to the Iron Capital Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with another episode soon.